You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Justice is Served. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and your host here today. And I'm joined today by my lovely partners in crime, attorney Chelsea Galicia. Hello. Hi, Chelsea. And the original host of Justice is Served and the woman behind a very impressive blog called YourLegalLady.com, Mari Fagel. Thank you for that introduction, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's great to be with uh, both of you guys today. And we're going to have a little bit of a different format. Instead of focusing um, a substantial amount of time on the case of the week, we're going to go straight into on the docket because we have a lot to cover um, in terms of legal stories in the past week. Starting with, um, within two days of the DOJ report on Ferguson, a 19-year-old teen was, a, a black 19-year-old teen was shot and killed in Madison, Wisconsin by, I hate to say it, another white officer. And um, and I think that the you know this guy was on probation for armed robbery, but he was unarmed at this time. He happened to be in a home, or we're not clear whether the home is his, but it's definitely a familiar stomping ground where he normally hangs out. There were a couple of disturbance calls, and in fact, one of them said he is not armed. And yet, when the police officer showed up, um, Tony Robinson, who is the 19-year-old kid, attacked the officer, punched him, and knocked him out. And the officer responded by shooting him. Clearly, you guys, excessive force, right? Yeah. And you know, the city of Madison issued um, a statement quoting Dr. Martin Luther King from 50 years ago saying that the road ahead is not altogether a smooth one, but we must keep going. My response to that is we keep going and this keeps happening. I mean, isn't this another Tamir Rice, another Eric Garner, another Michael Brown? What do you guys think? It seems like it to me. I know that they're saying try to um, hold off your uh, total judgments until all the investigations are, are, are it completed. Um, but it seems to me another story. Five times about it looks like this kid was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, of course, we don't know what the struggle inside was like, mm-hmm. but I, um, I can't imagine that it warranted five gunshots. I don't know if this police officer had a taser, if that would have worked better. I don't know. Lots of other things would have worked before taking your gun out and shooting and killing someone. And yeah, how, how common is it that a police officer would go into an apartment unit by himself? Isn't this why they go in together so that one person isn't overwhelmed in case mm-hmm. there is a confrontation? So, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to try and do as the mayor asked nicely to reserve judgment, but um, but this comes hard. at a time, Mari, of, of really heightened scrutiny of police departments across the nation and their treatment of people of color and citizens and and uh, communities have a tremendous distrust of their local police departments. So, what do you think? I mean, do you think that those disturbance calls merited this sort of response by the police? Well, I actually think there's. Um 
one thing that the other states should follow Wisconsin's lead here in that under Wisconsin law, anytime there's an officer-involved mm-hmm. shooting, the police department themselves don't investigate it, and outside department investigates these shootings. So it leads to more transparency, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that is something that other police departments should follow and should replicate. Um, I think it's an unfortunate incident like you picked up on, Chelsea. Why four or five gunshots when one would have been sufficient? Um, But the officer did have a blow to his head, like Mm -hmm. you said. The officer did come out with injuries himself, so we don't know exactly what happened in that home during that short Mm 30-second period of time. I agree. I just think that, you know, you got to look at the force used for the force in response. And I think a battery or I think one of the disturbance calls was for like strangling or something. You know, none of those um, call for a warrant um, shooting someone. And and anyways, this is obviously, I feel like, repetitive news. We have something to say about. The only thing that I saw that was different in this case was that the mayor uh, was was very almost apologetic mm-hmm. um, understood people's frustration understood people's distrust of law enforcement um, did ask for people to exercise restraint mm-hmm. in their protests but said that the police department would be out and enforcing everybody's right to exercise their free speech mm-hmm. to protest um, uh, the events that occurred so um, maybe what's changed is not exactly what's happened, but the reaction that's coming out right after from the cities themselves. Right. And maybe that's the step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And not just from the cities themselves, but from the families of the victims right. themselves, because um, his family, right after it happened, urged peaceful protest. And I think that is the opposite reaction than we saw with um, what happened in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. So I think that while this is this is yet another Eric Garner, yet another Ferguson, yet another Tamir Rice, uh, Michael Brown, we, the list goes on, I think that we're taking many steps in the right direction in that, you know, the city's quick to comment on mm-hmm. it. It doesn't take a long time, like with Trayvon Martin, to even get the story picked up mm-hmm. in the first place. So I think the media is quicker about it. I think that uh, the cities are handling their response better to it. The victims' families are handling their response to it. The protesters. So I think we are moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But the ultimate conclusion needs to be prevention. Preventing mm-hmm. this from happening over and over and over again. And we've talked about this and it starts in the academies. It starts in their training. And we had a special guest Dan Carver, civil rights attorney here before the holidays. And he said exactly what you're saying, which is the changes are very slow, but they are happening. Um, they're baby steps, but at least there's some steps, right? And that takes us back to Ferguson, where um, some major changes are underway, even in the one week since the DOJ report was released um, on the systemic racism that occurs in the municipal courts and police department of Ferguson. Um, the main uh uh, judge uh, Ferguson, Judge Brockmeyer, has resigned. He was the guy that was raising revenue for the city of Ferguson left and right by putting people in jail if they couldn't pay the fine, by slapping them with hefty fines for, you know, things like walking um, uh, in a specific manner. I don't even think we have that kind of law here. But um, And he was uh, a prosecutor in one city. He was a defense attorney in another city. He was the judge in this city. He thought there was no conflict of interest, of course. Um, officers and city clerks are 
have resigned or been fired. These are the people that were exchanging emails about um, calling President Obama chimpanzee and the fact that he's black, he can't hold a job for four years. Um, and just today, the chief of police of Ferguson resigned. And yesterday, the I believe it was the city manager, um, the chief executive officer of the city resigned as well. So it seems like there's a whole new city of Ferguson happening right now. Um, Which will be great if the people that step into their shoes are people that are really representative of the city. If they're filled in by other people of similar mind frame, then we're back to square one. So right. I really hope that there is a careful selection in who goes in to fill these spots. What do you think, Mari? I don't think we're ever going to be back to square one because the spotlight is now on Ferguson and the entire nation is mm-hmm. watching. So whoever steps into that next position is going to be sure to be careful because we just saw a house of cards fall apart. Right. And we I just th- saw every single person from different levels I resign. Right. And, and, and I the hope DOJ- they don't go somewhere else within the, the well, city or county Well, they're government. saying there are reports that there's cities neighboring uh, Ferguson that are even even worse in terms of their systemic racism. And I think the DOJ report, even though it's directed to Ferguson, is sending a message to all police departments across the nation. Hey, don't wait for us to come slap you on the wrist and implement a program. Do it. Get rid of the bad apples, you know, and make sure that you're treating everybody fairly. On a light note, though, I heard on Jon Stewart, first I thought it was a joke, but it really is a fact, that even the colorblind members of the police department of Ferguson are racist because the canines have only bitten 15 people and they've all been African-American. I just thought I'd share that. I mean, I, I think it's, well, you know, two-thirds of the population is African-American. The direction American. of yeah. the police officer right. that's guiding them. So, right. so it's yeah. not completely colorblind, but that's very clever. Right. So, um, and lastly on Ferguson, a juror from the grand jury of officer uh, Darren Wilson has filed a 21-page memorandum asking the court for an order to speak. It's really a First Amendment issue, I think. But the juror is saying, look, this prosecutor, Robert McCulloch, is lying to the public. What he's saying happened and the reason the grand jury came came up with a no bill is not really true. Um, all he showed us was evidence of self-defense by Darren Wilson, the officer, and evidence of aggression by Michael Brown, the victim. And so, uh, you know, what do you guys think about it? I mean, obviously it's a First Amendment issue, but do you think that there's a chance here that Darren Wilson could be re-indicted? I mean, indicted. Oh, I... I doubt it, but I hope that this woman is able to speak. I doubt also that they're going to let her, but I think that the prosecutor was way beyond anything appropriate by going on and on and on in his public explanation of what went down Mm -hmm. in the grand jury because it painted a narrative that wasn't the case. He tried to say that it was like a unanimous decision by every member of the grand jury not to indict when that, in fact, was not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that caused us a lot of people to be really upset, maybe even more upset with the grand jury process than they would have been if they really knew what was going on behind closed doors. But don't you think if there's prosecutorial misconduct, if this rises to some kind of prosecutorial misconduct, I think that they can certainly file a complaint against Darren Wilson. I the statute hasn't run. Or against Robert McCullough himself. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Secondary. But you know what I mean? I he mean, seems to think he's untouchable the way he was speaking. I think that... Um, this show, show, um, shown a spotlight, a shined a spotlight on the grand jury system. I think it would be a dangerous precedent to allow 
grand jurors to start speaking about what happened behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. though you have to balance that with the national interest and the controversy in this case at hand. And so it is a balancing test between, you know, what would be better in the end. Um, But I don't think that this would lead to Darren Darren Wilson being re-indicted. I know the NAACP has been looking into this. I just... The DOJ closed its book on it. Ferguson closed its book on it. I think that we're just going to move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that people will be watching how grand juries are used um, and whether they're used to to get a certain outcome because mm-hmm. the prosecutors made up their mind of the outcome they want so mm-hmm. they just use the grand jury as almost you know their scapegoat uh, guys yeah you know uh, uh, not to defend Robert McCulloch because he is a, a DA but um, <laughs> but your arch nemesis right but you know I think that I think that he has a job to do in a grand jury which he has to wear the hat of a prosecutor and a defense attorney and I think because this was such a high profile case he went a little overboard, as you said, Chelsea, and he was just going on how unanimous the decision was and how it was clear-cut. It was just, there was no gray area. But I think he was, yeah, you're he right. He should have been able to give those interviews after. Right. Right. Or if they do. Uh, but the public wanted to know what happened. And because the grand jurors couldn't speak, he, he had to speak on their behalf. Mm-hmm. So then in that case, then they would have to allow the grand jurors to submit anonymous uh, but then that would open story. the door for grand jurors in every, every single case, case yeah. to be able to that's do that. That's the problem. That. Is it's such a it's such a confidential venue. It's and such that's a, the whole purpose and point right. of it. So, but so then, how does it be, remain confidential when the one guy who's on the inside? Uh, being the prosecutor and the defense attorney is allowed to give his narrative of what happened in that room. It's the only narrative that is allowed under the law. Yeah. Really, I mean that's what that's what I think Mari's saying, and I agree. But um, it's not working. It's not working. It to, would but work. That's not the grand jury's purpose is to serve as a confidential forum. Right. So I just think that the opening of, the door to allowing grand jurors to speak about what happened behind closed doors would be a dangerous precedent. This would actually be a good topic for our viewers to post on our on YouTube and iTunes where you can find us and tell us what you think. Do you think that the grand jury system should change and we should allow statements like this to come out? Or do you think that we should maintain the um, sanctity, I guess, of our grand jury? system and, um, and and this is just an aberration where a prosecutor I, I think probably- anybody looking at this grand jury case does not think that this process was sacred by any means. I mean the only thing that I can hope is that this is the last we've heard of Darren Wilson and he does not become the next George Zimmerman where we're talking about his luck or unluck with the ladies. Just yeah. I hope he stays far, far away and takes a look at himself and what happened here and that this is a warning to all people who are considering doing something like what he did. Yeah. Well, Chelsea, you said that Darren Wilson hopefully is a name that we don't utter again on this show like we've done with George Zimmerman time and time again. There is another name that we have talked about on this show over and over again, and he is back in the news. Mm-hmm. Bill Cosby. Uh, I want to talk about this next story. Uh, the woman uh, in the picture, her name's Jewel Allison. She's a model. She's come forward and said that in the 1980s, same type of story. He drugged her drink, and then he um, she, he she put he forced her to put his hands her hands on him. And um, luckily, it didn't go much farther than that. But why did she not come forward until now? Mm-hmm. Why, when all these women have been coming forward, the numbers have been going up and up and up, and saying. 
Bill Cosby raped me. Bill Cosby sexually assaulted me. Why did Jewel Allison feel the need to keep her silence until now? And I think that she had very important comments to say about her silence. I want to read some of her comments. She said, basically, that uh, the reason she was silent was because she did not want to have a negative impact on the Mm African-American community. She didn't want to have, oh, yet another male... Um, African-American male being villainized in the media. So I'm going to read some of her comments now. She said that uh, of Bill Cosby, we may be looking at America's greatest serial rapist that ever got away with this for the longest amount of time. And the reason why he got away with it is because he was hiding behind the image of Cliff Huxbull, mm-hmm. obviously his character from the Bill Cosby mm-hmm. show. Um, but she, she went on in her op-ed to say that um, she didn't come out with her accusations earlier because she didn't want to see, quote, yet another African-American man vilified in the media, and she didn't know if her loyalty should lie with women who were sexually Mm -hmm, assaulted mm -hmm. or uh, with black America who's been systematically victimized. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was um, a very interesting comment on Mm -hmm. her and on her perspective should her uh, loyalties lie with these numbers of women who've now been coming out and saying they've been sexually assaulted by this man or should it lie with is is there some sort of problem with the media that um bill cosby could then come to represent all of black america Mm -hmm. and what he's done uh well, the, 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 the image that Bill Cosby has, not just with African, the African American community, but with everyone. I mean, he is Dr. Huxtable. He is the dad in every household. He is the jello pudding guy. And, um, it's very hard, I think, for people to divorce themselves from that image and that idealization of him. And what I found most compelling about her story is that it's like a double whammy. It's like she, it's, it's as though it's not bad enough to be a victim of sexual assault and all the stigma that it that it comes with but she's also uh, feeling the guilt and the reservations um, about letting down her people you know the african-american people and um, there there have been other african-american uh, accusers of bill cosby like beverly johnson who is also mm-hmm. a former model but none of them have really spoken in these terms this is the first time i think we're hearing one of his accusers one of i don't know 25 or so um talk about Okay, it's not just about being a victim of sexual assault, but it's about being a victim of how the media portrays the black man as a lustful, violent uh, predator on a white woman. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it must be very difficult, and she's very courageous to, to have stepped forward despite these... Absolutely. I, I, I don't know if anybody can argue with the logic that she's offering in her piece mm-hmm. that uh, there's more to it than just a sexual assault. There mm-hmm. is uh, what she said, there's almost glorification that he was turned into an icon that represented uh, n- not just you know one family, but an entire uh, way of life that people uh, wanted to believe could be true mm-hmm. uh, for black America and that uh, he, in effect was able to, I, I don't know if this was intentional, but which came first, the uh, Bill Cosby misbehaving or Dr. Huxtable, but it was such I a, think the bis- misbehaving. Yeah, it was such a perfect <laughs> right. smokescreen. Right. Uh, I think, um, I mean, it's a terrible the way it all turned out, but I think she's very true that, very right in, in saying that somebody like this, a media icon can't wield so much 
power over everyone's idea of what a black man is. Mm-hmm. How yeah. have we let one man define that? Uh, I mean, he's not a civil rights leader. You for God's sake, he's an actor, you right. know. And yeah, but, but I think it answers beautifully everyone's question: Why is everybody coming out now? Mm-hmm. Why didn't anybody say anything mm-hmm. about this before? And uh, it makes so much sense. And there were parts of it that that I didn't even understand until reading her words. Mm-hmm. So I really encourage everyone to to read it, especially if you're um, one of those who are like, how can this be true? If this was really true, we would have all heard about it in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. when it happened. Mm-hmm. I think she hit the nail on the head when she said that he um, was able to hide behind the image of his character on the Cosby show. And because of that, this went on for so long without anyone talking about it. Mm -hmm. But all it takes is one woman to break that silence to give the other women the courage to speak up. And hopefully, um, once this nation becomes more tolerable of rape victims coming forward and makes it a more comfortable environment for them to share their story, women will continue to come forward and not feel like they need to keep it inside for so long, for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to move on to uh, another person who is not, who we talk about often on this show, Chris Brown. Uh, I want to, Phil, I want to start like a ringer or a buzzer for every time we talk about Chris Brown on this show, because it literally must be every other week at this point. So uh, Chris Brown, that's his baby mama, Nia, that is his daughter, Royalty. <laughs> yes, her name is Royalty, and that's why they all have crowns. Um, I thought that... This is a very interesting use of um, family court and the justice system right now. Chris Brown found out about a month ago that uh, he was a father to this baby. Basically, they had a relationship in the summer of 2013. She was pregnant. She gave birth nine months later. Then he found out uh, that he was the father. So he immediately decided to pay her off so that she would keep her mouth shut and not speak to the media and keep everything confidential. Mm -hmm. And normally, um, I'm sure you guys can talk to to this as well, in family court, uh, there is, whenever there's child support payments, there's an equation Mm -hmm. that's factored in as to how much the person, Mm -hmm. the father, owes uh, the mother every month, and it's based on their income level. He paid way above that because he just wanted to make sure that she kept quiet. Mm -hmm. And he now is saying uh, that she's been the one leaking these stories, and this is how this story's been getting out, and now Mm -hmm. Cruci Tran broke up with him, Rihanna's probably pissed, the whole... (laughs) All the girls. All the girls. girls. And um, so now he wants to use family court to get his monthly payments to her back down, because if she she blabbed, then she broke her side of the Mm -hmm. deal. So if he actually goes through family court and gets child support payments, it would be less monthly Mm -hmm. payment than what he's paying her now. So what a perverse use of the court system. Unless they find out that these leaks didn't actually come from her. And then they're left to uphold a contract that I'm sure wasn't drawn up. And if I don't know that this was a contract. Well, verbally. I think, right, but I... Will it be a contract that's upheld as an enforceable no, contract? Listen, Chris Brown, um, uh, funny enough, uh, he's, he's in my office all the time because my office made us his lawyer. Um, I've never had the Department of Probation come to the attorney's office to meet with the client, but they do for him. And, you know, with all his problems while he's on probation stemming from the whole Rihanna thing, um, suddenly he's becoming this really responsible dad. He wants to fly to Texas to father this kid. He's paying more child support 
support and and child support like Mari said is uh, is calculated according to the Disso Master which is the most hated software by all men um cuz it, it it it's based on different factors but basically one of the main factors at the top of the list is who has more custody this kid lives in Texas i assume you know the mother has at least 75% custody or 100% so even though the payments are going to go down because she blabbed and opened her mouth so he says um she is still entitled to you know a, a a more a more a substantial amount of custody than she would if there was a 50-50 split but nonetheless um i mean I, it's not often that fathers go into court to to um it, well, it's not. It's not often where they pay more than they're required to pay. Yeah. They barely pay. Is more more happens more often. And and now he's trying to reduce it. I would think he's he's also going to ask for some credit, like back credit for what he's overpaid. But maybe she was quiet for all those months, and so she gets to keep it. I think it would be very interesting. Probably not going to happen if the court hears the issue of whether there was in fact a contract. When if it went down, like Chris Brown said, I'm mm-hmm. going to give you X amount a month. That's over what I would legally be uh, supposed to paying you but the rest is to keep quiet and she says like okay, a confidentiality fine. agreement right. and that's possibly legit. so yeah. if it turns out that that's the deal and she didn't violate the terms of the that mm-hmm. deal she could have a contract in fact where he owes how much uh, he originally told her he was going to pay her but do you honestly think that in this day and age with social media and all these apps and all these things where uh, you know wives and girlfriends find their significant other cheating on them. I mean, does, did he really think that he's going to be able to keep this um, sure out of the media yeah. and out of, uh, how do you pronounce the girlfriend's name? Crucci Tran. Crucci. <laughs> I thought it was a care wash. Sorry. But anyway, um, you know, I mean, how long did he think he's going to keep it out of her, you know, away from her ears? I, it's it's incredible to me. But anyway, I nice try. It'll be interesting because this will be the first time that someone I'm sure will be standing in front of a judge in family court and saying, please calculate the payment. I want to pay this. Please calculate it for me <laughs> because it's going to end up being less than what he's been paying right. out over the last couple months. Right. But he's still probably not going to like the amount. And what's come out is water under the bridge. I mean, yeah. you know, he's got to deal with the damage, like you said, with all the girls. But yeah. anyway, moving right, on. Shall we move on to Suge Knight? So if you recall, Suge Knight is sitting in jail um, pending murder charges for uh, the hit and run of two men where one of them died. And we've known all along that there was a video that showed the incident uh, that occurred at Tamsburger uh, in Compton. Um, so we now have the video out, and we are going to show it. do want to warn you that it is graphic, although the um, body of Terry Carter is blurred throughout the video, so you don't see everything that I'm sure is seen if it's not uh, blurred out. But it is still tough to watch, and uh, we will uh, talk you through it as we're ready to show video it. video of Suge Knight running down two men with his pickup truck, killing one of them. The video so, is everything. The video in this case is the whole uh-oh. story. TMZ broke the story in January. Well, so we're going to play the whole TMZ story. It's not quite tuned up to the part. Maybe we'll eventually get there. But what you see in the video is off in the corner. Oh, here it goes. Yeah. Shug is pulling up in his red truck. Somebody, that's Claybone, comes up to talk to him, hit him. I don't know exactly. I'm sure uh, people are saying Shug's team is saying that the, he came up to hit him. And then you see that he backs up, hits uh, Sloan, who drops down, and then rushes forward and hits Terry Carter uh, 
and, and, and not Harvey off. Levin. No. <laughs> yeah, Harvey Levin, get off our screen. Right, right. All right, What's there it? we go. Oh. Think maybe this time. So here he goes. He's going to back up. And then when he's down, this is the part where they're talking about was a gun removed from his waistband and is that what's going into that guy's waistband there? Very interesting. But what they're not showing is the part where Suge um, goes forward and actually hits um, Terry Card, just just runs him over uh, quite brutally. So... um, you know, Suge saying, this exonerates me. The prosecution says, this shows you exactly why we're charging you with murder. Uh, Sarah, I know you've done a lot of um, research on this one. Yeah, not so. Actually, um, my first issue is with uh, your conclusion that you see Suge driving. You actually don't. And I think if the defense wanted to, they can raise an ID issue here because Suge needs to be identified as the driver of that red pickup truck. Uh, that can easily be done by way of a witness, but um, you don't see him driving this car on the video. Um, but I think the crux of the case turns on self-defense and the defense being able to um, show that all of his actions, and not just whether a reasonable person would act this way in response to this approach to, to, to him you know, at his window, but whether a reasonable person exactly in Shook's position, so somebody who's been attacked and shot at before and almost killed, Twice, at but least. There was no shots rang out here. So right. that's all in his but, background. But the defense can still bring in evidence other than this is just one piece of evidence and what I'm trying to say is that it's not conclusive it it can be used by the prosecution, it can be used by the defense. From a defense perspective they're going to say that these people commonly walk around with a gun, that that was a gun, he was approached with a gun and therefore using a deadly weapon being the car, I mean he had two choices he could have driven forward and by these people and risked being, I'm talking from a defense perspective, and risk being shot at, okay, or he could have driven over them, surprised them with the car and, and killed them in response to him almost being killed. First of all, can we back up even before he pulls up? On Earlier that day, he had already gotten into a confrontation with some of these guys. So what is he doing coming back to confront them again? That's my question number one. Apparently, he didn't, uh, Shug didn't like that this movie that they are making uh, portrays him in a negative light. Well, if you don't like how you're being portrayed, you do what every other American does, you sue. And that's what he should have done instead of showing up here like he was going to convince but, somebody but to you're, change you're, something. But you're analyzing the whole case. What I'm trying to, to uh, I guess what, what I'm uh, focusing on is the video and the evidence that this that, that the defense or the prosecution need to corroborate this with because by itself it's not conclusive. The prosecution is going to say, and Mari, tell me if you agree or not with with uh, with me because if you agree with me, you disagree with her. Um, uh, you know, the the um, prosecution is going to say. Look at the way he's driving. He's driving volitionally. He knows exactly the decision he's made is to run these people over, hurt them, and kill them, which is enough for intent to commit murder. And then the prosecution is also going to go back and pull out another video from last year outside a Hollywood nightclub where him and Cat Williams get into a brawl with a group of people, and he gets in a white pickup truck, drives off, and people are screaming and saying, oh, my God, he's going to run us over. Uh, if that evidence ends up being admissible, I think that would be a prosecution's dream. It <laughs> would be a dream. I mean, I'm sure they're salivating over that. But, you know, anyway, what do you you think is 
up with this video. I don't think it's... I think that when it comes to video evidence, people are so quick to say, oh, that's the smoking gun. Mm -hmm. That's going to lead to the guilty verdict. Mm -hmm. But the problem we see time and time again with videos is the crux of the case is always what's just outside of the view of the camera. And, you know, like in the Eric Garner case, everything was captured on video, yet still the grand jury failed to indict in that case. And everyone was saying, but how? It was all caught on video because it's the way you describe what happens in the video. And the defense is going to get up there and they're going to say, you can only see part of the confrontation. You can't see exactly what's happening between Suge Knight and the people outside the car. And they're going to say he was surrounded. There was a gun pointed at him. Mm -hmm. He couldn't move forward because he would have been shot at. And that's all he could do. But the problem, I think, lies in, okay, when he first hits the first victim and he reverses out, that's understandable Mm -hmm. if their claim is, you know, they pointed a gun at him, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then he could have just reversed out and easily taken that road down and mm-hmm. just left and gotten out And, of and the from way. a defense perspective, he could have been shot at if he yeah, did that. But instead, he goes or, directly into the line of fire and he goes forward and goes straight through and kills that second victim. And I think that will be a difficult part for the defense to explain away. Mm-hmm. I think the first half of the video they can explain away. The second half is going to be more difficult. And you want to know why I think it's going to be more difficult? The fact that Terry Carter's family, the own, own the uh, victim's family, are the ones who wanted this video released. They encouraged yeah. this video to be released because they want to show people that their son was killed by a murderer. Yeah. Well, and I think that uh, Suge's defense, and I don't know why he's now on his third defense attorney and what. I'm happy to address that. But uh, (laughs) I think they're starting to get desperate because I just read this morning that they're now want to use as a defense that uh, Suge is legally blind in his left eye due to glaucoma, which is resulting from his diabetes and therefore he couldn't see as well. Why was he driving in the first place if he really can't see? This just. And now he's wearing glasses as well. But you know what? Um, that that would just anything to make this more of an accident will allow Shook to walk away with hopefully something lesser than first degree murder and he, and hopefully see the light of day at some point. He's a forty nine year old man. But with respect to the defense attorneys, he might go to number fifty. I hope I'm number four, or number ten. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, it's his constitutional right. He has a Sixth Amendment right to be represented by counsel to have effective assistance of counsel. And I I don't think we can speculate. Sometimes people hire lawyers because they disagree on their defense. Sometimes it's financial, although I don't think that that's the case with Chuck. But there's a variety of reasons why clients aren't happy with representation and move on to another lawyer. And I don't think we can speculate as to that having any bearing on his defense. Or and any all that matters at the end of the day is what the jury hears. And the jury would never hear that he went through a multitude of defense attorneys. Right. You know, he's just they'll, they'll never hear that. And the explanations, Mari, that you were referring to with the video, that the video is not enough. I mean, we always wish that there is a golden nugget in every case, but I think the video requires a lot of explanation, and these explanations are going to be done by witnesses, but by people that were there. We already know they exist, so um, it'll be nice to see how this story develops, and of course, we'll update you. Absolutely. All right, so now to a much l- more lighthearted story, but still no laughing matter for Robin Thicke and Pharrell, who must give it up 
uh, to the tune of $7.3 million to the family of Marvin Gaye for ripping off the song Blurred Lines. We brought this to you last week where we played a little medley back and forth of the two songs, Gotta Give It Up, from uh, 1977 and Blurred Lines from just a few years ago. To me, they were strikingly similar. To Sarah, not so much. Apparently, the jury agreed with me. I don't exactly know how they came up with the $7.3 million. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit less than half of the uh, profits from the song itself. But uh, I was not surprised. Anybody surprised? Mm-mm. I think it's an unfortunate outcome. I will say I was yeah. not surprised in that the jurors were actually given the song composition music notes in the sheets to look at and to yeah. compare. But I do think it is an unfortunate outcome. It is a dangerous precedent. And I don't think this is the road we want to be going down in terms of um, intellectual freedom, in terms of um, artistic freedom, in terms of creativity. Because the problem is Robin Thicke's song coming out didn't hurt the sales or in any way truly damage Marvin Gaye's estate. In fact, Marvin Gaye's song, Got to Give It Up, the profits went up after this song came out and mm-hmm. after this controversy mm-hmm. came out. People thought, bit. oh, I want to hear the similarity. Oh, I actually like that song, so I'm going to download it. Well, and a- that song became back in the news. And the mm-hmm. problem is, now... Artists are going to be, their expression is going to be chilled and their freedom of expression Mm -hmm. is going to be chilled because Mm -hmm. artists will be concerned, oh, this sounds somewhat similar to this song and I don't want to be sued and I don't want to have to give up money for damages, so I'm just going to create a a totally different song and I think that, I think it's an unfortunate outcome. And and I think the the message that this jury sent to the entertainment industry and artists in, in general overall is that inspiration and there's a fine line between inspiration and infringement, and I agree with you, Mari, that it does have a chilling effect. There's a maxim that um, good good artists borrow and great artists steal, you know, and, and that sort of art imitates art. You know, there's that saying as well. And aside from the musicologist that you mentioned who found the constellation of eight parts of these songs being identical, um, I thought that the defendant's own statements were so hurtful in this case. Uh, Robin Thicke had not only made a generic statement that he's inspired by Marvin Gaye, but he'd actually stated that with respect to this particular song, Blurred Lines, he had told Pharrell, hey, you know, we should uh, write a song kind of like Got to Give It Up. I mean, specifically the song. And then Pharrell, this was amazing, I just found this out yesterday, Pharrell in his testimony um, said that uh, that he, he was played juxtaposed bass lines of both songs, and he said, "But, but it sounds like the same song." And I thought, "Oh my God!" Like nobody <laughs> prepared him for trial. Yeah. You know, uh, that was horrible. So yeah. I, I think their own statements um, or admissions uh, hurt them tremendously. So, but do you guys honestly think? I understand that the sounds of the songs are strikingly similar, even though I know you, you don't even agree with that. Um, but the messages of the songs and the lyrics are so completely different but, that they send two completely different but messages. That's what the, uh, the musicologist argued that the messages are actually very similar. The lyrics are very similar, almost in structure and the and, theme. And how about I the think music so, yeah. videos with yeah. uh, naked Emily Ratajkowski. Def- Marvin Gaye definitely did yeah. not put that one out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I don't know. I, and the whole thing about the, this is a terrible thing for the music industry. If the music industry is very upset about this, they would be talking out of both sides of their mouth because a few years ago when music went on. Online, they were very upset that their uh, intellectual property was being stolen by all of us, you know, taking music from Napster, and they wanted their intellectual mm-hmm. property protected. So, if the music industry came out now to be very upset with this, 
they would be a little bit hypocritical in my eyes. I also think the strange thing about this case is that it actually went to trial because copyright yeah. copyright infringement cases are commonplace. Some of the songs but, that were in controversy got settled out. Yeah, right. But the biggest one being Tom Petty and Sam Smith. Um, that you know, I think it was over. Um, Sam Smith's, you know, big hit, and and they settled out of court. These settle out of court, and it's interesting that um, they stood their ground and they took the case to trial. I know that Pharrell is going to appeal it. I don't know what Robin Thicke's position is, but if if there's an appeal, it's going to be a lengthy one, like it is in these cases. So I think that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and that all this does is skyrocket the sales of the first song when the second song comes out. So I think so it if, doesn't hurt them in the so end. So if they want to do that, you you engage in a deal beforehand a royalty deal, a licensing deal, so that you don't have to pay 50% of the profits on the back end. You work out something so that you pay less. That they failed to do, yeah. for sure. But Alright, so shall we wrap this up with our tipping the scales story? This one will have you scratching your head and asking, is that really legal? How can this be legal? So I'm talking about an article written in Politico magazine by a former Supreme Court judge for the state of Alabama. She wrote an article called, I was Alabama's top judge and I'm ashamed by what I had to do to get there. What she's specifically talking about is her campaign to become uh, Supreme Court Justice entailed soliciting uh, campaign donations. You're thinking, okay, that's fine. Every politician does that. Except, imagine that you are a lawyer who has had a case heard before that judge or who might have a case heard before that judge. She was calling and reaching out to them and asking them for donations and that was legal. She didn't like doing it. She was very pained by it. It was very uncomfortable. But she had to raise about two and a half million dollars to win her campaign. Her opponent raised twice as much, five million dollars. And if this sounds absurd, that's pretty normal nowadays for a political campaign. Mm -hmm. So... Sarah, were you shocked by? No, I actually, um, I think that we have one of the fairest systems. Uh, there's so many countries that buy their judges, that buy the verdict. This isn't buying them? Uh, it's not buying them. I think there's nothing wrong with a judge. You, you need campaign money to get to the bench, right? And there's nothing wrong with, not only there's nothing wrong with going to lawyers who know you, but that's the sure bet that you're going to get support is from those people. The, the judges that I've supported are judges that I've known. I've never Never given any money to judge that you know I hear so and so's good she's leaving the DA's office why don't you give her some money I don't I, I give to the judges who I've had experience working with and I think they're fair-minded people I think that you know yeah, there are systems always- also in place where um, you know I think I mean in, in in Superior Court here in California the judge has to disclose if if I appear before a judge I've given money to he has to disclose how much I gave him that I gave him money for a whole year this happened to me once and like I was I, I hated I hated it because every time I walked into his court for a prelim he would say how much I I, I gave him and you know, that's how I found out about this so I think there are ways to um, to to still be fair and and it, public you know, financing but, but of judges campaigns. are human beings before they put the robe on I mean you know it, even if it's not money Mari uh, they're you know they're human beings they might not like. Um, a specific, they might not like guns, they might not like drugs, there might be something that triggers them automatically, or they might be former prosecutors who really have that sort of mindset no matter where they're sitting. But what do you think about companies who are allowed to, through PACs, donate endless amounts of money? 
and I, then have their case heard before this judge. But I think there is still a transparency to it. They can donate money, but I'm sure it will eventually come out if there is a situation where those companies do come before these judges. I mm-hmm. think there is a code of professional ethics. There is a code of judicial ethics. Um, and I think that um, the system is designed to lead to transparency. I do think it does put... Um, people in an awkward position when they are running, and I've spoken to DAs at the DA's office, some of which who um, are uncomfortable with the idea of eventually running for judge because then they do have to turn to the people who sat across from them, Mm -hmm. turn to the defense attorneys um, and different people for donations and ask them for money, and um, I think it it just kind of blurs that line going off the last story. And so uh, I think that some DAs are hesitant to run for judge mm-hmm. for that reason. But I think that there's also, that's why there's two different systems in place of uh, judicial appointments and elections. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that the system is fair. There's always, there is always a chance with anything that someone will try to game the system. But I think there are certain yeah. checks and balances in yeah. place to I, prevent it. I, I think that this law, which is um, the case in about 39 states where uh, judges have to c- campaign this way, uh, is legal um, extortion, and I think it's uh, reprehensible in a democracy. But if you agree with my co-hosts, um, please let us know. Uh, you can tweet us your opinions. We would really like to hear. I'm at Chelsea Galicia. At Azari Law. And at Mari Fagel. So with that, I think we will wrap things up. Thank you so much for joining us. Sarah, any last closing words, anybody? We'll see you right here next week on Justice is Served. Thank you. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.